This sermon, True Marriage is the Handiwork of God, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, October 1st, 2023 at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning. What a privilege it is to be able to preach God's Word this morning. If I could have you stand with me, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. What we are about to read is, it's absolutely amazing. It is the scene, it's the beginning leading up to and the very scene of the first marriage in Scripture. It's the first marriage of mankind. It's a garden wedding. Imagine for a minute the Garden of Eden at this point. Imagine this man and this woman in this scene. I remember being in Vista del Sol Baptist Church on the east side of El Paso, about to be married to Lisa as her dad came in, bringing her down the aisle. It's a radical difference, this marriage. There's no sin. There's no brokenness leading up to this union. It is completely, wholeheartedly, holy matrimony in a holy, amazing sanctuary of the garden. Let's read together this scene. My text this morning is chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. I'm going to reverse just a little bit to verse 18 in that chapter. So we have a little bit of the scene as we get to those, those words. Verse 18, God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together while you can be seated.
Lord, I pray that you would constrain my mouth to your word, tether my thoughts to your word, keep me in your word. Holy Spirit, be kind and superintend what's happening. God, I pray for your church. I pray for her, and I pray that your church would be constrained to your word. That all of our thoughts together as a church would be tethered to what you have already said. Jesus, now be exalted. Be lifted up. You, the groom of heaven, How good it is that you will be good to us. Grant us hope. God, I pray for the moments during the sermon where the exit ramp could be to despair or to hopelessness. I pray that you would grant us hope. Close those exits. Lord, wake us as well. Wake your church to your word. I pray the end of the morning would be one of a renewed gratefulness and hopefulness and help from you that a joy would be poured into us through the power of the good news of Christ And that that, that would change us forever. Lord, be with us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Al Mohler wrote years ago this, I'm going to quote from two different articles. He opened this one. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state instituted by God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church. He comments that familiar language from the Anglican 
Book of Common Prayer, recited thousands of times every week in various forms, presents a vision of marriage as deeply Christian institution, even a necessary portrait of the love that unites Christ and His church. As marriage signifies this mystical union, it points to the understanding that takes us far beyond the relationship of the husband and the wife. Do most Christians even have the slightest understanding of this? He writes elsewhere, question of homosexual marriage presents the American people with an inescapable moral challenge. The words homosexual and marriage are inherently contradictory. The very fact that these terms are in public conflict demonstrates the radical natures, nature of social revolutionaries now that now demand the legalization of homosexual marriage. For at least the last 100 years, America has experienced unprecedented season of social transformation. Now this transformation has been extended to the experimentation with the most of and with the experimentation with the most basic institutions and cherished principles of our common life. A conversation about homosexual marriage is only possible if the concept of marriage is completely redefined and severed from its historical roots and organic meaning. That's a bleak picture of today's culture, isn't it? But let me from the onset preach hope to you. Nothing has happened to the original definition of marriage. It has not moved one inch. Where are we to go for help regarding this cultural shift in definition of what a man is or what a woman is? And today, today in this sermon, what true marriage is? Where will we go? We will go to His Word again. The disoriented words of doctrines that blow across the face of the planet. Can you imagine the things that are now being discussed, even publicly? Take your phone only for a moment and be careful how you type in your search criteria and you'll discover it is radically shifted. It is disoriented. The waves of doctrine continue, of false doctrine continue to blow. But by God's grace, God's word has a stabilizing effect on his people as we go back. I don't know what you're like, but sometimes I I hear these things and for a brief moment, maybe even for a drawn out moment, I I wonder what's true. It begins to creep into us. Do not underestimate the influence of the winds of doctrines and myths that are across this earth. He will in one fell swoop and has in this one fell swoop speak and instantly the storm is silenced. The definition of marriage is fixed. This morning we are considering this statement, and I've provided this for us as an overarching statement of the text. And picking up on the familiar language from the recently preached message from a couple of Sundays ago, true marriage is the handiwork of God. True marriage is the handiwork of God. And the final word on this 
true marriage, that final word has already been spoken. It is a biblical marriage. It is marriage as designed by God. True marriage is established by God here in Genesis 2. True marriage is created by Him. It is not marriage. True marriage is not the creation of man, nor is true marriage established or sustained by man. True marriage is designed by God, and therefore it is defined by God. He defined them in his first words regarding this marriage. There are innumerable, I mean, that's the right word, if his word is eternal, but maybe a better way to say it is, if we go to his word, almost every single page has something to say about our marriages, the implications on our marriage. What does it say specifically and explicitly about marriage? And our text today is explicit, meaning it's what comes out clearly from his word regarding marriage. He has spoken finally about this already. God's word with these numbers of things that are said, I'm going to focus on three parts of the definition of marriage. God's definition of marriage. I'll look at them in three parts. Here they are for you. True marriage by design is between a man and a woman. God's word says it's between a man and a woman. True marriage by design is God's joining of that man and woman. That's that second part. So it is man and woman, and it is God's joining of that man and woman. And finally, we will look at true marriage by design is made holy. And therein, that one is our hope, of course. It's made holy by God. Our first part of this design or this definition of true marriage, and by the way, as you and I even begin to speak about this matter Derek said this last Sunday, I'll say it again, everything we are going to say this morning about marriage is completely denied in our culture today regarding this. Every single word of these points is an argument and is an affront in this culture, and they would take it as an attack on them when we can clearly see from the word it's actually us assailing God and his word, not the other way around. This first one, true marriage by design is between a man and a woman. God's word has already spoken to us. I said this morning in Derek's office, we were meeting and talking through this. I wouldn't be able to stand and preach about true marriage as we get to Genesis chapter 2, particularly verses 24 and 25. I couldn't say much about it if we hadn't already heard what has already been said about this. This first one, it is clear that God makes the man, God makes the woman. And marriage in this case is clear. It could not be clear. The nouns and the pronouns. And that's not just a push, by the way, on our culture that's a easy uh, trigger kind of language out there. This is legitimate. The nouns, I mean, look at the language in verse 24 alone. Let's look together at this one text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The nouns and the pronouns involved in the original language makes it clear it is male and female, man and woman. If we are confused on this matter, please hear me out on this. When we hear these, it can feel confrontational to us. But our struggle is not due to the lack of clarity of God's word on the matter. It's due to 
our struggle. It's due to our willingness to consider, well, maybe it's something else. Or our unwillingness, I don't like this. These words are very clear, man and woman. Well, I don't know about that. Well, that's not, that's not on God. That's on me. If I begin to wonder, is that really true? We'll just go to a few verses after this and find out, oh, that's actually, the problem is actually worse. My struggle is not just a lack of understanding. It's not just a confusing or disoriented or perplexing matter about what marriage is. It's a demonic attack on the definition of marriage. It is Satan saying, did he really say? Is that really what God says about marriage? Sermon number one, two weeks ago, our gender as male and female, the handiwork of God. Last Sunday, true masculinity and femininity, clearly the handiwork of God. And today, marriage, true marriage, the handiwork of God. The answer is clear. It is male and female. Now, to illustrate this, and you know that most illustrations will break down, and I'm sure you'll find holes in this, and I've been trying to figure out how to do this one to keep it clear. I read it out to Lisa this morning, and it was almost like she said, well, okay, I'll be praying about that as she took the dog out for a walk. That was my wife's kind way of saying, I don't know if I get that, but labor with me through this one. Imagine for a minute we're in an art gallery, and our art gallery is a Bible art gallery. And we happen to be in a systematic topic of marriage regarding, uh, of marriage in this Bible gallery. And the curator actually turns out to be the creator of the gallery. And everything in this gallery is a couple. And it's a man and it's a woman. The sculpture, the artwork on the wall, And the one leading us through the gallery is the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ himself, the creator of marriage. And so you and I, we will walk up to, if this was a piece of art in the art art gallery, and say, wow, that, that is beautiful. Now, art guy, what do you call the curator? What is this? And he says, clearly, that is a man and a woman. You're like, hmm, I don't know about that. And he's like, no, that's a man and a woman. You're like, well, well, I see that, but what else do you have in here? He says, well, I, I have a man and a woman. Come with me. He takes me into the, I look on the wall, another image of a man and a woman. Oh, I, I think I know what that is. He goes, well, it's a man and a woman. And we go from peace to peace and peace in his art gallery that he created, and his design, his interpretation, his definition, and we wonder, well, what is that? And he clearly says, that in marriage is a man and woman. Now, here's our trouble, and here's where our culture's problem is as well. Is we say, well, I was wondering if that could be a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. And he said, it can't. Because I'm the one that made marriage, and it's not. Well, that's what I'm looking for. And his answer essentially is, you're going to have to go somewhere else to find it, because it is not here. The definition 
of marriage. In his design is male and female, and there's no way around this. Let's continue to look at this. There is a second part to this design and this defining of what true marriage is. It's right for you and I to come to his word, and we would see here it is a man leaving his father, and he's going to hold fast to his wife, a woman. That's clear. We know that's in the context of him actually making a man and drawing out of that man this amazing creature that God has made just for him, a woman. We go back even a little bit further, and we hear the explicit words in verse 21 that anchors this in chapter 1, verse 27, excuse me, in chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. What we also have here, if you'd go right back to chapter 2, verse 24, is furthering providing more help to us regarding this marriage. This definition of marriage is male. It is female. But it is also God bringing them together. God's joining of this man and this woman. They didn't somehow naturally find one another. They did not somehow, Adam did not somehow, as he looked across creation, see Eve. It's like, okay, she's the one for me. He does say she's the one for me after God brings her to him. What a beautiful scene in this garden wedding there in verse 22. In the rib of the Lord, he taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. That's what we have in our traditional marriage is we have the father bringing the daughter in marriage to the man. That's what that is imaging. That's what it is pointing back to. It's pointing back to the original definition. This is God's doing. He has made the man. He has made the woman, and he has done their union. He has brought them together. He creates their union. They are, in God's design, made for each other. They're made for each other to continue in that marriage to show forth his image. Verse 18 said, It was not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And as the scriptures continue to reveal, it's so that God's glory would be manifest all the more in him, designing men and women and drawing them together, man and wife, husband and woman, together in holy matrimony. Adam's response in this is absolutely beautiful. She's perfect in so many words there in verse 22. This is bone, I mean, verse 23. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This exclamation in the original language is almost as if he exclaimed it in a song. Out of just before the Lord is almost done doing what he has done. The man cannot do anything but to respond who this woman is in God's design. Immediately highly attracted to her. Deeper than just physical. Therefore, is a response to what's already occurred there in verse 24. That opening word in verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his... It's responding to what has occurred already. They were made, they were made for each other, and God brings them to each other. Therefore. So, 
even the writer, Moses, and the ultimate writer are saying, look, this marriage, this is why I call men out of their homes. This is why I call women out of their homes. And that man will turn. And how he was connected normally in his family, he now is radically connected to his wife. He will hold her forever fast to himself. He holds her and they become one flesh. There is a unity that God has designed and this is where for you and I it becomes beautiful and uncomfortable. One flesh does mean what it means in the text. It doesn't take much understanding of what it means but there's a deeper meaning here. That physical design of man for woman, even in their design it is possible and made possible by God and only by God. He does hold fast to her. They do become one flesh. And here enters in what we had opened with. Same gender marriage cannot be true marriage because it violates God's design of marriage in the first place that is between a man and a woman. It is by design, a man and a woman. This married couple, along with God's design, that they would become one flesh only in marriage, as the scriptures will continue to bear out, them becoming together as one. Moms and dads, you get to talk about that at lunch. They do become one. It is definitely physical. Here's why we have to consider that. Because of what we discover about the prohibition of same sex. The physical union between a man and a man and a woman and a woman is an abomination to God. We know that clearly from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Genesis 19, 1 through 10. Shocking perversion of all male mob. I'll let you read the story. Judges repeating a similar story. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, homosexuality is clearly a sin and a sign of the deepest depravity, men being given over to a debased mind. Here's why it's hard for us to hear this, because we don't like it. Somehow we're trying to allow for the presence of both, God's design and men's desire. And the Lord is saying, God's design should have all the defining call and commands regarding your desire. Something radically happens in the very next moments of this story. The man and the woman in perfect unity and without shame. Something radically happens and depravity begins to set in and we don't have to read long into the scriptures, even into the first book of our scriptures. Shocking perversion begins to creep in. 1 Corinthians calls out homosexuality clearly as a sin. The language could not be clear. We have sought to reinterpret every single one of these texts. I don't have the time to unpack it. You can go and you can find reinterpretation of these. The matter of God's authority and clarity on the matter of same-sex unions is they're an abomination to God. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. We cannot underestimate the influence it's been on us in our culture. We have family members and dear friends that are caught in this. And man, we're trying to figure out how to make this work. We're trying to figure out how, how can I continue to love my family member when this is what they've done. 
And part of the influence is, well, then I begin to believe what they've done is good and it's right. And God's word says that it's not. Out of 196 countries, maybe 197 countries in the world today, almost 20% have legalized homosexual marriage. In the last six years, in the last six years, seven years ago, there was zero. In the last six years, we have 34 countries that have legalized this. I was fully expecting that it would be America that had led the way. It wasn't. It was Bermuda. I was blown away. Bermuda made it legal in 2017. And within months, began to recede their law. The world, the, excuse me, the word on the street and in the headlines and in our courtrooms, in our advertising and in our politics and in our universities and schools and even in some of our churches, definitely in some of our families, it's here now and it's not going away. That's what they say. It's here now, and it's not going away. But now, enter hope on the scene. True marriage, as defined by God's Word, is not open for reinterpretation. This is good news for us. When it corrects us back to the nature of His Word, any other definition, adding to, it requires adding to or taking away from God's Word, no longer being God's definition. All of this culture's Culture's incessant self-expressive attempts to redefine marriage. They are altogether something else from his design. But now, there is a big change as we get to verse 25 that begins to preach hope to us regarding this. I used to believe and actually probably have said more than once, probably in my family, that one of the first beautiful images of the gospel, the good news, that God has come to forgive sinners and to pour grace out on those who have turned from him, would be that moment where Adam and Eve found in their sin by the Lord, he clothes them. That's usually what I would point to, that he covers their sin. We get to look at that now radically. But it actually begins here. The gospel hope begins here in verse 25. Consider the beautiful intimacy described in a sinless garden, wedding, and marriage. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. More often than not, when we consider our marriages, we feel Shame. We think of our harsh words. We remember our sins of lust. We go back into the history of our marriage, who we were leading up to our marriage. All we've known connected in marriage is some degree, and in some marriages, a greater degree of shame. Here in verse 25, God describes marriage, true marriage, as being without shame. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because this third part of the definition, we've looked at God's design of true marriage is between a man and a woman. We've looked at 
True marriage by design is God's joining of that man in a woman, that holy matrimony. But here's that first word in holy matrimony in our third part of the definition here in verse 25. They were without shame. God made marriage holy. True marriage by design is made holy by God. He's the one that has set it apart unto himself. He's the one that has taken marriage and has made it a holy thing. He's the one that made it from the very beginning that the man and the woman could have everything completely exposed, nothing hidden from one another, no shame, none, completely shameless. What an amazing picture of marriage that God states right before shame enters marriage that he had designed it without shame. Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see God's handiwork, and his handiwork in this case is taking that that he had made, that that he had designed, and then he declares over it, it's without shame. It's holy in my eyes. It's beautiful in my eyes. And those words, by the way, when he says, and they were without shame, are echoing those words in the creation when he said, it's very good. God says something, it's very good, holy. Before sin entered this garden, marriage, holy. This is a good thing in his eyes, in his design. They didn't come do this together. He had done this. He had designed who they were. He put them together. And he said, this is good. It is, it is like my nature, holy. The mention, even the mention of the man and the woman being naked begins to cause us to back up and recoil. The use of the word naked in our culture, but even for us personally, takes us back to what is actually a biblical truth about this word shame. Shame biblically literally means our nakedness exposed for all to see, or at least some to see. And it's not just our nakedness. It is our nakedness in sin that gets exposed we are now seen for who we really are as men and women who have sinned and have sinned grievously. Moments of shame begin to, begin to climb into our thoughts. We begin to hold things against one another in our marriages. Our greatest hope for our marriage is that we finally, not that we finally stop conflict, so that we would go back to God's original design that marriage was holy and we need God to make us holy again. Moments of shame in regard to our own marriages and shamefulness that we have witnessed in other marriages also cause us to doubt that God has made marriage to be free from shame because this is what we've always known in our experience. But marriage by design is holy in God's eyes. It is beautiful to Him Biblical marriage is designed and defined by God. There's no shame. So now let's consider how that's possible. Allow this verse, this verse 25, to have its full effect on you and I, doing these two things, bringing us hope and conviction, 
bringing a sinner hope and conviction. If all I get when I read verse 25 is, and the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed, then I want for Lisa and I, for there be the presence of no shame. I desire that my marriage will be made pure in God's eyes again. How is that going to be possible? Let verse 25 preach that possibility because this is the way God has originally designed it. That clothing of sinful man and of sinful woman later after they have sinned willingly against God, they, it's stated about them, they saw that they were naked and they hid from one another. Their shame now gets exposed. In their eyes, it's not just, wait a minute, there was always something wrong to start with, now we see it. It's like, no, they're sinners and they see it. The first thing that they do is they separate themselves from the Lord. They separate themselves from one another and they run. Shame turns into the blame game. You did this, she did this, not me. Is that call? But the joy is that God has consecrated holy matrimony and he is now at work drawing us back to that regarding marriage. For you personally this morning, if you are marriage, hold this hope out. The holiness of true marriage is redeemed by the gospel, God's gospel, the good news. If you would turn with me, it's actually going to be on the screen to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 31. Here is how the good news of the scriptures now informs this beautiful picture in the garden that the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. We have only known shame. Hear what Paul writes, the apostle Paul writes to men regarding the relationships in marriages. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. Does that sound familiar? And the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this in verse 32 in chapter 5. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The gospel began to be preached in verse 25 in Genesis. Genesis 1.25 says that they were without shame. Paul says this was pointing all along to Christ and his church. Because of what we have in chapter 3, the fall of man, the good news begins to spread immediately from the garden on. We need a Savior. Our marriages need that Savior. This world needs a Savior from this. We're preaching this message in light of what the world has said about marriage, so that there would be clarity in the church about what God's word has to say about this. Paul would say, well, begin with the gospel. This is what marriage, this is what make marriage holy in God's eyes. It was his design from the beginning to point to Christ and his church. Consider what the world has been saying about marriage and how it would mar even this beautiful picture of the gospel pointing or the, how this uh, marriage points to the gospel. Kevin DeYoung says this, sexual, sexuality in the context of heterosexual marriage is not only good, but it's exclusively good. Only heterosexual marriage relationships can show forth the complementary design of men and women. According to the Apostle Paul, one of the purposes of marriage is to show forth the mystery of Christ and the church. If marriage can be construed as a man and a man or a woman and a woman, what is left 
of the glorious mystery of Christ and the church. We are left with only Christ and Christ and church and church. What a joy to know that our marriage actually was pointing us somewhere rather than to ourselves. Remembering God's original design, it's made holy because it pointed us to His nature. It was in His image. God is saying, man and woman, together, naked, without shame, that points to me, I'm holy. We turn and run into sin. Shame pours into the world and pours into our marriages. And the very redemption of our marriages is actually that marriages themselves are pointing towards redemption. The greatest hope that we have for our marriages is the original design of our marriage. Men and women brought together, pointing, pointing to Christ and his church who have been brought together. He called her out to himself and made her his own. The church called out of sin, brought out of sin, made holy by God and given to the Son. What a beautiful picture we, ha- we reject same-sex unions as being somehow part of redefined marriage, not because they're gross, not because it's hard for us to get our hands around, not because it's difficult to consider this. We reject it because the gospel has said something very different about this. In fact, the very means of salvation regarding same-sex unions, homosexual attraction, is to point them back to God's original design God has something beautiful. You're longing for something and you've gone somewhere else. You've wandered into the wrong art gallery regarding this. God is saying the gospel offers repentance and forgiveness to the same individuals that have been trying to mar the very picture of that gospel. The joy is that gospel picture will not be removed. Paul will say straight on, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You and I, without shame, can speak of the shamelessness, no shame, in the beautiful design of a man and a woman brought together by God, and God designing is holy. Speak it without shame. There is no shame in declaring the good news of Christ. Don't preach a good marriage, that you get compliments at the restaurant. I just saw how you guys just love one one another, which, by the way, is wonderful. No, let your marriage be an image and that portrait that God has designed it to be. Husbands and wives, we have blown it horribly. We've blown it actually specifically in our marriages, haven't we, at times? In fact, right now in this room, there's a brokenness in some marriages, regarding the shame that has come into marriage. Your marriage is salvageable. There's hope and forgiveness to restore you to the intimacy between you and your husband. It's more than just physical, but it includes the physical. There is a hope made for you. There's a hope that is designed for you. There's a hope that was always crafted for you. There's hope that your marriage would be without shame. He has done so. 
And there's power in this gospel. Not only do we not have to shrink back in fear from this, it is a powerful gospel. The power that we need in our marriages that rescues us is the power of that gospel. Husbands, now, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Has she sinned against you and has sinned against you horribly? Have we not sinned against God horribly? And he has forgiven us in his son. This is all pointing us to a much beautiful and much better and hopeful picture for us. Same-sex unions throughout this planet, they're being held, the gospel and the same hope is held out to them as well. It is, in a sense, gross. It is that what the Apostle Paul would describe as the conduct in same-sex unions is so bad that we can't even mention it. Isn't that the nature of all our sin before the Lord? You know, all of our sin was sending us down this road already. You and I are on this side of the flashing swords that bar our reentrance into the garden. Turn back with me just for a moment in your imagination and look back to the garden where Adam and Eve are expelled out of the garden clothed in animal skins. What was once pure, now disgusting. And a flashing sword of the angel guarding the re-entry to the garden so that they, sinners, cannot go back in and taste of the fruit of eternal life. You know what that was also pointing to? It was pointing to that day that the swords would flash again. One in particular as it pierced the side of our Savior and His blood poured forth. Sin does bring about shame. It does bring about death. Maybe you feel like death has crept into your marriage. There's hope in the gospel. As you and I don't only look back to our expulsion from the presence of God, we look back to that moment where we were invited right back in to the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 describes the Savior Jesus like this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw confidence near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in our time of need. Aren't we in that time of need? Let's run to Christ, repent of our sins and believe in Him and find that God invites us right back into the very throne room The flashing sword kept us from his throne room, kept us from that beautiful purity of the garden. Christ has come and has removed that barrier, but he has done so by his blood. 
what you and I need in our marriages and what this world needs regarding the filth that they've brought into the definition of marriage is they need the blood of Christ to come and cover our shame. We need shameless marriage. We have shamefully brought sin into marriage, but the joy in the gospel is that Christ himself bears that shame that we should bear. He bears that shame that we have invited in on himself. He takes the shame. He takes the deserving wrath so that you and I, so that our marriages, and so that this culture can be redeemed back to him. The complete removal of shame. Isn't that appealing to you? Isn't that hopeful to you? A friend of mine, years ago, he came to me, a big smile on his face, and he's laughing, and he said, hey, um, I just found out that my office secretary was one of your girlfriends in high school. I immediately felt the shame. What are you feeling shame over? What is it? Oh, the blood of Christ. Let it cover your shame. What a redemption. If I could have the band. Is your marriage in a time of need for mercy and grace? The greatest counsel I can offer, the greatest counsel that our pastors can offer, the greatest counsel that our fellow believers in this church can offer you is not first a program but it's to point you to the gospel that removes the shame and redeems your marriage. There is real power in the good news of Christ that by the time you leave today and you get to either your lunch destination or off to your separate rooms in your home, that real healing can occur. Humble yourself before the Lord. Go to the Redeemer whose blood covers your shame. And let the power of the Spirit restore your marriage. Don't grow weary in your marriage. Get help. Go to the Scriptures. Come to us. All we're going to do is point you back to this. Your hope for your marriage. We want to help. What's happening in our world, is it not disorienting and confusing to you? It's mind-numbing at times. Here's my encouragement. Persist in the truth. Take God's word and let it reorient you again. Is it dizzying when you hear all the new definitions? Is it hard? Is it unclear? Go to what is clear.
go. Do you believe that God reigns and that His Word is truth? Go to His Word. Don't grow weary. Continue in pursuing good. Do you long for the removal of your own sexual sin and the shame that's attached? Maybe the sin someone else has committed against you. God has seen it all and His offer of hope for you is present. Someone else may have brought you shame. You would stand with me. Lord, my first prayer this morning as we close is that you would minister to any person present where the shame has come from someone else. It's confused them. It has scarred them. The affliction seems unrepairable to them. Let the hope of the gospel now flood their hearts and show them that it is repairable. You are able to heal them. God, if they have responded to this in their own sin, they now have added to the shame of someone else's sin, their sin, God, I pray that you would show them that you have come, Jesus, that you have come and that you have shed your blood for them and that you cover their sin and they are no longer, if they've believed in you and have trusted in you, they no longer are shameful in your sight. They are shameless in your sight. They are without condemnation. There is no guilt that is theirs anymore if they are now believers in you, Jesus. God, I pray for your church that we would be fortified again by these sermons, these messages, that we are only simply repeating what you have already said. The word regarding the definition of marriage is final and it's beautiful. 